Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brining and Jeremy Dunn. They will be taking your calls and speaking with a different guest each week. You are encouraged to call in and share your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Are you ready for your dose of hope? You're listening to Pause I Am Radio. everyone and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. I'm your host Robert Brining. This evening I'm joined by my radio sister, Jeremy Brown, Jeremy Brown, Jeremy Dunn. Hey Jeremy. Who the hell is Jeremy Brown? I don't know. You know what? I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the switchboard and I have Marvelin's um, audio there and I just thought, I don't know. But how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Ho- hopefully this week will be a lot better than the train wreck that was last week. Yes, yeah, so we want to apologize to everybody for last week. I was unable to host, and Jeremy um, was going to run the show as usual when I'm not able to make it in. He was, where were you, in Toronto? I was in Ottawa, and Ottawa. Uh, because you're not, because, so basically in different countries, you're not on the same cellular network, so I was on a roaming, and every five minutes, my uh, phone would cut off, so that was Nice. You were Roman, right? Yep, I was Roman, eh? <laughs> you were Roman in Ottawa. Roman in Ottawa. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so, uh, but uh, no, I'm back home. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, laying here, actually, kind of propped up in bed. Charlie's kind of uh, sleeping on the bed over there. I've got the screen on the TV. So if I kind of, you know, go in and out, it's because I'm watching Gale Weathers. Right, so we apologize for last week, and we will be rescheduling Jeff Allen, I believe, in um, a few weeks. So he'll be back on probably in November. So I'm excited to have him come on at the time. Um, I, I, how was your weekend? My weekend was actually quite good. It, uh, we had uh, a lot of fun. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Daniel and I went and saw uh, uh, Wicked, so and uh, had a great time. So, and it was his first time going to see Wicked, and it was my third time. I never had a great time. And uh, then after that, we went to uh, went out, had a few drinks, and came home. Cool. Yeah, it was just a really late, you know, it was just a really nice night. So that sounds like fun. I had a pretty, I had a pretty crazy weekend, but it was very, very exciting. Um, I. got to play with Sean's softball team, the Wolves, here in Philly in a tournament that took place in D.C. called the Magic Tournament. And, um, you know, I went as an extra player. I've only played fall ball before, so I'm not the best, and I'm somewhat new to it. So, you know, I went there in case anybody got hurt, and I, you know, ran the bases because, you know, you can't keep speed, from what my mama tells me. I batted a few times, and he did well. But, um, you know, it, it was an experience for me to, to go and meet all these people, and we ended up winning the tournament. So it was a lot of fun, and Sean did amazing out there batting in, in the field. And along with everyone else on the team, it was just a real awesome experience to be part of a team that was like – it felt like a brotherhood, actually. All of them, like, out there. It was awesome. Oh, that's fun. Very cool. So we won, Very girl. Cool. What's that? You said we won. Woohoo! Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. So, and we so beat Carolina. You beat, beat Carolina. Carolina. We beat. Oh, wait a minute. We beat North Carolina. Um, Thunder, who beat us earlier today, and then we had to play them in the championship game, and we beat them twice back to back. So it was kind of exciting. And yeah, kind of like awesome. in your face, North Carolina. That's right. Eat that. Eat shit. <laughs> did you just say the brown word on air? The brown word. Yes, I did. So. Um, other than that, you know, we, we literally got home less than an hour ago, so 
I was th- I thought you maybe would have to run the switchboard, but we we made it in time. So I'm excited to be here with everyone since I missed last week and all that good stuff. I do have some good news. I do start my HIV certification training this week, so I'm excited about that to become a counselor. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I got put Friday. on the waiting list. Yeah, yeah. So Thursday and Friday, I have a uh, you know uh, I guess you know class all day or whatever you want to call it to a. Uh, to get certified, and then again next Wednesday as well. Nice. Very nice. Uh, you know, one day I may be, you know, helping people more living with HIV. So that's exciting. And if you haven't already, you need to go to um, aumag.com or AU Magazine. You want to go to their website or pick it up at your local ASO and, and check it out because there is a nice little article in there about moi. And plus, I am in the radio show and all that good stuff. So, you okay, know, go you check do, out. You do realize that it just sounded like a, an article about Ma and Pa when you said Ma, that. Ma. Yeah, about me. <laughs> and you're mentioning Larry Belgian. You and your website, PositivelySpeaking.com. Me? Yeah, you, because you're my co-host, girl. You're my oh, right co-host. Girl. I was a sidekick. Right. I was a funny sidekick. A funny psychic, and without you, there wouldn't be a show. So, well, yes, there would be. Yeah, it'd be a little more it, difficult. It, it wouldn't be near as much fun, and it wouldn't be funny, and 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 you know, people would be uh, bored. But uh, hey, there would still be a show. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll give you. So, so who's our guest tonight? Uh, our guest tonight is the founder of World. Um, from Rebecca Dennison. Uh, she'll be coming on shortly. Uh, you can visit the website um, by going to uh, www.womenhiv.org for information on the organ- organization that she started. Out as a newsletter in 1991 in, I believe, in her basement. Um, it started as a newsletter to about 200 people, and you know, now it's this humongous organization, and World actually stands for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Diseases. Okay, say that one more time. Women Organized. World stands for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Diseases. Wow, that's that's a heck of a, uh, that's a mouthful. So I'm, I'm glad we can say, and, it's, and I'm just glad that we can say, uh, you know, you know, say the the acronym, right? World. Um, and World. actually, um, I, I found out about Rebecca um, actually by going to the International AIDS Conference when we were there, and we went to the dinner for the Body dot com. I got to meet her two lovely daughters. Um, so it was just really cool because they were there, and I believe they're in high school. So they, um, you know, were just attending. I guess I don't know if it was on behalf of their mother or. Well, they're also involved, you know, in, in the community, in the HIV community, because of their mother and, and the work that she does, and they want to get more involved to, to, to help spread the word. So it's exciting. Uh, Sarah and Sophie are the daughters' names that I got to meet, and actually Sean approached them first um, after they shared a little bit about their story and why they were there at the dinner. And, you know, Sean's like, they would be a great guest. You know, they'd be awesome. And I was like, yeah, I want to have them on. So actually uh, Rebecca's daughters are going to be on next weekend to share their story, but I wanted to have Rebecca on first so we could get the backstory of exactly how it all started and, and what it's all about. So I, I see Rebecca's on the line, so please help me welcome Rebecca Dennison. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hello. Okay, I don't think that is Rebecca. So we will wait for Rebecca to call, and she still has a few minutes. Um, other than that, Jeremy, do you have a new blog post or anything up lately? <laughs> you ask every week, and I always say it's the same answer. No, I always have the same answer. I have got to, though. I think I'm going to take some time this week, and because I have to, I actually have to uh, redo some, uh, redo my uh, the about me page and a couple of other things, and update pictures, things like that get things on and going and and it just you know, it just I have a lot of housekeeping I gotta get get done. So well, good. there's always time for that. You know, another thing happened this week which I totally forgot about. Um 
Olivia Ford for TheBody.com, which is where I blog, um, she actually came here and interviewed me for a video piece for The Body called The Day in, Day in the Life. And it's, it was basically about adherence to meds. And it was really cool that uh, she came to Philly to visit us um, for a few hours. She, she came from New York. And we sat and did the interview here. And um, it was just awesome to see her. And we went to Geno Steaks and we, we kind of hung out in Philly and went to the Mazzoni Center where I go to my support group, and we did some video shooting, and it was just really nice to, to connect. So that's another thing that's coming out where you'll get to, um, you know, see a little bit more of myself and hear more about the radio show. So now that I see Rebecca on the line, I will actually bring her on. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> welcome to the channel. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I Can you hear great. me? I'm, yes, yes. Okay. I'm amazing. I'm excited to have you on this evening. Um, you know, your daughters are amazing. I met them at IAC, and um, I'm just thrilled to have you on. Well, thank you for having me on. Oh, we're glad Hi. to have you. Hi, Rebecca. May Hi. I call you Rebecca, or should I call you um, – What? What would you, is it okay <laughs> if I call you Rebecca? Yeah, Rebecca's fine. Okay. Unless you have another pet name that we can call you on air. No, no, Rebecca's good. Okay. <laughs> because I, I I just might you know, I, I understand your your husband's listening. Uh yeah, I think my husband and the kids are uh listening in the kitchen. I'm in another room. Oh. Yeah. So so what can we do to embarrass them? <laughs> to embarrass them? Yeah, yeah. Oh goodness, I'm sure I'm sure we'll think of something. Okay, I excellent. I want you to think of, you know, the time when, you know, the the girl you know, uh were you know, were being babysat or something and, you know, running around and then a diaper fell off or something like that, you know. Something that would really, <laughs> really Because I know well, my mother so, would do that. Yeah. Um so I don't think I'm gonna do that. Because you know, I get to talk to you guys for a few minutes, but I have to live with them for the rest of my life. So uh, I, I don't. I'm. Not, I mean, I may end up doing that, but I'm not going to do it on purpose. Let's put it. Oh, that way. okay. Okay. We'll 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 guide you down that path a little bit later. I mean, I think mom moms are pretty good at embarrassing their kids, even when they try really hard not to. So it'll probably happen, but awesome. I'm not going to do it on purpose. Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. So, let's let's um give us a little bit of a, of of a backstory of what made you get tested what um for HIV back in, in 1990. What was the reason why you went and got tested? Oh, okay. So actually, I went to get tested. Um, my best friend's sister was dying of AIDS, and it was the first woman I'd heard of having AIDS was my best friend's sister. And so my best friend said to me, every time I go to the hospital and I take care of my sister, I think of the risky things that I've done, and I've made an appointment to get tested, but I'm really scared. And so I was like, oh, you'll be fine. I'll go with you, and we'll do it together, and you'll be fine. And that's what made me go get tested. And then when the test came back positive, um, what was the first thought in your head? Um... The, well, first I just felt like a truck had hit me. Like I actually think I stopped breathing for a while. I was in so much shock. And then the first thought in my head was that I was never going to be able to have a baby, which was also shocking to me because I just didn't realize until that moment how important that was to me. And then I started thinking about the people I loved in my life. So I thought about my husband and how if I had it, I'd probably infected him. And then I started thinking about my parents and how, you know, here I was finally a self-sufficient adult and they were going to have to spend their elder years taking care of me while I died of AIDS. And then I thought about me and, you know, that I was probably going to die of AIDS. And it was two days before the International AIDS Conference. And so within the week there were people in the streets um, demonstrating and chanting AIDS is a disaster, women die faster, and handing out pamphlets saying that women died six months from diagnosis. And so I thought I had six months to live. So I was pretty, wow. um, you know, at the time I really thought it was a 
death sentence, and that was it. Yeah. Well, you were diagnosed in what year? 1990. 1990. So that was six years prior to um, the the uh, to the heart or ART, and um, yeah. So so in in some cases it, it it could have been right oh yeah i mean the only uh my friend's sister was taking a dose of azt that was like double what people take now um it was the only drug she had and she had to take it every four hours so she never got more than four hours of sleep because every four hours around the clock she had to wake up and take her dose and so you know, in those days, you saw people take medicine that if they were lucky, it slowed down how fast they died, but we still assumed we were all going to die Right. in those days. And I'd had it for, you know, seven years. My husband um, was actually in Guatemala at the time, so he had to fly home to be tested, and he tested negative. And then I, you know, traced it to a boyfriend in college who it turned out had died two months before I was diagnosed. So, you know, I remember very vividly getting super sick in 1983, um, shortly after we got together. So I've had it, it'll be 30 years this spring. But when I was diagnosed, I'd had it seven years and I thought, yeah, you know, I'll live, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll see another Christmas. It was June, so... That, at, at the time, that was my goal, was just one more Christmas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and a lot, of people just, didn't, a lot of people didn't make it, you know, for one more Christmas. Right, right. And yeah. uh, so in, re, in, in your mind, you've beaten the odds at, at, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, in my sure. mind, I was kind of just crazy, you know, like... Yeah. In that, you know, now looking back, I can kind of go, well, gee, you'd felt fine for seven years. What makes you believe that suddenly because you have this label now that you're going to be dead in six months? But at the time, I didn't think that clearly. You know, the level of fear around AIDS was so high that, you know, I looked at that piece of paper and it said six months, and I just took it very literally. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight now, I'm like, I didn't have AIDS. All I had was HIV, and the paper was, I think, referring to an AIDS diagnosis. But I didn't know any of that. You know, I had to go out and find other people with HIV, find a community, get involved, and get informed. You know, and once I got more informed, that helped with the fear a lot. But in the beginning, I didn't know anything. How did the family take it? you know, hearing the news. Yeah. My family was amazing. I I credit the fact that I became an activist um, to the support that I had. I was diagnosed on the Saturday before the International AIDS Conference. I worked a block away, so um, it was really in my face. And I spent about five days trying to just smile, and when I saw people who would say, how are you, I would sort of try to look normal and say fine, and when my husband tested negative, I think he tested negative that Thursday, and on Friday, there was some huge march down Market Street in San Francisco because of the AIDS conference being in town, and I just kind of said, that's it, you know, I'm not going to walk around and pretend things are fine, and I'm not going to hide this disease. By then, we had... um, disclosed to his family. He has 10 brothers and sisters, so there were a lot of people we had to disclose to. Um, But they were amazing, and they were super supportive, and my boss was super supportive, and my family on my side was super supportive. So, you know, five days into it, I said, that's it. I'm I'm not going to hide it. I'm just going to live out and, you know, do what I can with the few months I have left. (laughs) Did you disclose it as, like, a group? You said he had a big family. Did you disclose it, like, in a group, or did you do it individually, one-on-one? Um, mostly one-on-one. We went to his parents' house, and a couple of his siblings were there. And so we disclosed to all of those people at the same time. And then we made appointments with people. We made, like, I took time off from work 
I felt like if I tell people over the phone, they're going to think I'm on death's door. They need to see that I'm okay for now. And so we had, like, breakfast, lunch, dinner dates around the Bay Area um, for a couple of, you know, for a week or two. And we had to drive to Oregon to tell my family in person. So it, it was probably a good month of disclosing to people. But what I found is that when I told people in person, um, it went much better than when people heard it through the grapevine. People who heard it through the grapevine were really freaked out. And um, my best friend was amazing. She said, you know, when you tell people they're going to be so shocked, they won't know how to respond. So you should model for them what you want their response to be. If you model fear, they're going to respond with fear. But if you model fight, that you're going to fight this thing, they're going to want to join you in that fight. And so that's what I tried to do. That's so true. That's one of the things that we say here at the show all the time is that when you kind of disclose with confidence, Mm -hmm. um, you're more than likely to get a better reaction from the people you're disclosing to. But when when you go to somebody and you're sobbing and you're crying and falling apart about, you know, disclosing, it kind of leads them to be like, how am I going to take care of this? And it's more of a, you get a negative reaction. Not a negative, but a little bit more standoffish reaction when you're falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think one of the challenges with disclosing is, you know, one reason to disclose is to get support. But the reality is that when you disclose to people, they might be so upset. I found myself putting out a lot of energy to support them, so that's kind of a thing to weigh into it. Um, I have a friend from Denmark who's very, very um, honest in saying what's real for her. And two weeks after I disclosed to her, she called me up and she said, you know, when you first told me, I was so scared. All I could think of was myself and whether I might have it. And so really I wasn't able to think about you. But now I've gone, I've gotten tested, I know I'm okay, so now I need to check back and see what you need and how you're doing. And I just thought, I just appreciated that honesty because I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of people who felt that way, but she actually said it out loud. Yeah, it's that, it's that verbalizing the uh, the what, what they're actually feeling. And, and uh, when you actually hear it, it's like, oh, mm-hmm bells go off, you know. Yeah, yeah my goodness. I, I'm sorry, Robert, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I was just curious, have you, Rebecca, did you get any kind of negative reaction from, from anybody, whether it was a friend or a family member? Um, not very many. I mean, the Bay Area is relatively progressive. Um, I had been working in an immigration law firm. So my clients were from all over the world. And I'd been working with, um, especially with people from El Salvador who were applying for political asylum who'd been tortured. And so I had a guy that I had done free legal work and translation work for for probably three years. And um, when I disclosed to him, he literally backed out of my office into the hall. Yeah, so that didn't feel very good. But um, most people were really amazing. Um, I also, I had a, um, no, I won't go into that story. Yeah, it was mostly pretty good. No, that's good. I mean, considering that within five days you decided you were going to live open about it, you know, I mean, that's something to be, um, I want to say, it, it's commendable. It's something that, you know, it took me up to five years to accept my status, and for you to do that within five days is amazing. Um, yeah. And, and for, but, for your husband, go ahead. But the difference is, you know, what's different, though, actually is, uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of getting to do that because – I already knew that my employer supported me, and I already knew that my family supported me. So who cares what anybody else thinks, right? But actually, when I had my kids, I I backed away from that. I became much more careful about who I disclosed to because if you don't like me, that's okay. But if you don't like my kids, if people aren't going to let their kids play with my kids or if they're going to freak out about my kids or be mean to my kids, that 
was really a big fear that I had. So I actually became more more closeted after my kids were born. And now that they're old enough, you know, they're 16 now, and they're very clear that, you know, they're comfortable with people knowing I'm more open again. But when they were younger, I was more protective of them. Right. You, regard, you know, you, you tend to be guarded with the information. Yeah. I, I completely understand that. Um, yeah, so I, I just say wanna, crazy I, stuff to kids. Oh, they certainly do. They yeah. absolutely do. Um, yeah. I do want to say one thing um, that I have something in common with oh. your daughters. I, I believe they're twins. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I'm a twin, and um, and then my two younger sisters are identical twins. So there's our commonality. Yeah. Twins, twins of the world unite. Yes, but I twins say. are pretty fun. Yes, they are. If you get but, along. Uh, yeah, they are. Well, you know, <laughs> we had our awkward years of between, you know, five and 18. Um, <laughs> That's a but, long time. Uh, <laughs> yes, ask my mother. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me uh, a little bit about, and, and tell, well, not just me, but tell tell our um, our listeners about mm-hmm. uh, getting pregnant and having these babies 16 mm-hmm. years ago, um, and because there are still there are still folks out there who think that they can't have children, mm-hmm. um, and and I think your story can kind of well it it says no you can so yeah tell us about that process. Well, not okay. the whole process. You know, you don't have to get into all the picky details, but sure, you know what I mean. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. But before I talk about that, I want to acknowledge that there actually are some people who still really can't. Because in the early days, a lot of women were pressured to get sterilized mm-hmm. and can't undo that now. Um or there were people who waited till it was safer or who were given incorrect information and then kind of aged out of, you know, got too old to have babies. So, But my situation, when I tested positive, that was the thing I grieved the most. Like I was sort of like, okay, I can cope with dying. Maybe that sounds weird, but I could sort of accept the idea of dying, but I couldn't really get over the loss of feeling like I was going to die without ever having kids. And it really felt like this baby, turns out there were two of them, but it really felt like this baby was out there in the universe, you know, asking me to bring them into my life. And um, it was just too scary. It was too dangerous. The risk was around 25%. And besides, if you're going to die in six months, you're not going to go get pregnant, right? Right. So, if you're three months shy of a. <laughs> yeah, I got that. Yeah. Yeah, the the numbers didn't didn't look good. So then, as time went by, um, I wasn't getting sick. It turned out I was a slow progressor. I did progress, but I progressed pretty slowly, and then this study of AZT in pregnant women came out and showed that you could dramatically reduce the risk of a baby being born infected, Um, and we had an amazing clinic specifically for HIV-positive pregnant women in San Francisco. Uh, We were in Oakland at the time. I'm in Berkeley now, but we were in Oakland, so that's just across the bridge from us. So as time went by, I would keep collecting information, but it just felt too dangerous, too dangerous, too dangerous. And finally, I just realized that, first of all, it had gotten to a point where it wasn't that dangerous. Um, I mean, it's dangerous, but if you do all the things you can do to make it safer, it's not that dangerous. And then it was the thing I wanted most in all the world. So um, we did decide to get pregnant. Um, and got pregnant. The twins was, you know, a bonus. And uh, I think, you know, I I thought when I chose to get pregnant, because by then I was running an AIDS organization 
I thought I was really pulling away from AIDS activism when I decided to get pregnant, but what I found was that people were so hungry for information about HIV and pregnancy that it actually got me more involved um, than ever uh, counseling uh, positive women, but also, you know, mixed-status couples and positive men and, you know, lots of people who wanted to have kids. So I think... um, at least for positive women, what I would say today is if you have a provider who knows what they're doing, if if your, you know, viral load is under control, um, if you, I really recommend preconception counseling because there are some medications that are not safe to take during pregnancy, so it's good to go talk to someone who's a specialist before you get pregnant. Um you know, very, very, very few babies are born infected anymore. It's very preventable. And what I would tell someone today who's thinking about having a child is think about all the other things that go into parenting. The HIV issue is an addressable issue. Parenting is a is a huge, huge, huge job that goes way beyond the pregnancy, and um, and I advise people to really plan a lot around that too. Well, I think you, you've done a great job with parenting. I met both your kids, and they are amazing. I mean, I don't, I, I can't imagine you wanting anything more than for them to to be who they are because they were just so amazing when they were there talking about how they were so supportive of you and how they want to get involved as being two HIV negative kids to to go out there and kind of put their face out there to a disease that is so stigmatized. I mean, I just yeah. applaud you as a parent and your husband. Well, they really enjoyed meeting you, Robert, and um, I was very grateful because I wasn't able to go to the conference, and they were, you know, ready to go and learn and experience things. I think in a lot of ways it was better for them to go without me and really get to meet the AIDS community, you know, on their own. But, you know, people were so supportive and caring, and, you know, I think they really want people to know that if positive people want to have kids, they can. And I do, too. Yeah, I just think they were awesome. I mean, <laughs> it was one of the at the conference was meeting your kids. Aw. So nice I, I, I had dinner plans that evening, and I wasn't able to meet them, but uh, but I heard all about them from from, uh, from Robert. <laughs> Um, I just yeah. wanted to. Well, I think they're awesome, but obviously I'm biased. You know, every mom has <laughs> better, better kids. So you know, exactly. I gotta agree exactly. with you there. Hope every parent would. Um, yeah. I just want to let our listeners know that we are at the bottom of the hour. We are speaking with Rebecca Dennison, um, the founder of World. And uh, Rebecca, tell us exactly. Tell us again what World stands for, and. Uh, Tell us why you decided to um, start the organization. Okay. WORLD stands for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Diseases. And I actually didn't make up the name. Um, I had been talking about starting a newsletter for women with HIV, and someone from uh, an ally in ACT UP invented the name and then announced at a community event that this new organization existed and that I was in charge of it and people who wanted to join should go see me. So I didn't actually make up the name. but um, And it's, it's kind of a long name, but what's nice about it is it's very sort of generic and benign sounding and a lot of the women, World of the Women's AIDS Organization, and a lot of the women that I worked with over the years were not able to be out and open about their status. And so we wanted to be able to send mail to them back in the days when people used mail and uh, or call and leave a phone message. And, you know, if they're not there, to just be able to say, oh, you know, tell her Rebecca from World's called. Well, there's a million organizations that have, you know, world in the name. So we thought that that would be more discreet than, you know, you don't want to call somebody and leave a message and say, you know, Rebecca from the Women's AIDS Organization called. You can't do that. So um, so that's why we had the name. And, 
Yeah, I wanted to do a newsletter because um, by being out, um, and I was at that point participating in ACT UP and um, getting involved in the AIDS community, and most of the activists I was meeting were men, and they were wonderful, and they were really supportive. But I really wanted a way to get information for myself on women's issues, but also then to share that information with people who weren't out and activists and going to all this stuff. So um, I was just going to, you know, sit down at a typewriter and, you know, type up lists of support groups and stuff like that and leave it at doctor's offices. But my husband was just starting um, to study computers and learn more about computers. So he actually went and designed the first newsletter on a computer and then said, here's your newsletter, now you go write the content. Um, and then folks in ACT UP uh, gave me contacts to send the newsletters to, and then doctors and nurses and social workers started sharing it with their with their um, clients. But it had medical information, it had lists of support groups, it announced you know, get-togethers when people could come meet one another. Because um, I still think, even all these years later, the one of the best ways of dealing with the disease is to sit down with somebody who's who's lived through it and and who can share, you know, personally how they do it. I, I felt like a lot of times if an HIV-negative person wanted to tell me how to cope with my disease, I would sort of be like, you don't really know what it's like. And sometimes they would have good advice, but sometimes they'd give advice and I'd be like, mm, I don't think so. So I wanted to create a community where women didn't necessarily have to come out to get information. And also they could tell their stories and they did not have to use their real names. So a lot of women started writing in and telling their stories. Um, and some used their real names and pictures and some used, you know, aliases and it was all fine. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think it's... We started. Well, mm -hmm. let's take a... I'm going to take a quick... Um, quick break and then when we come back I, I do have a caller on the line so we're going to go to the caller and then we'll talk a little bit more about um, a world when we come right back so please don't leave we'll be right back okay I contracted a preventable disease from a guy that looks good and smells good but never mentioned that he had HIV but he is not to blame I should have loved myself enough to protect myself but through it all I found self love and it's the greatest thing I ever felt I was never less than or equal to AIDS, but always greater. I just realized that not caring for myself or my body, I was my biggest hater. I am author of the Naked Truth, Marvin Brown, and I am greater than AIDS. All right, and welcome back. You're listening to Pause Radio, and we are speaking with our guest, Rebecca Dennison. Rebecca, are you with us? I'm here. Cool. So, um... I want to go to the, the callers right now because she's been on hold for about a half hour. So let me uh, please bring on uh, area code 918. You're on the air. Hello, it's Carrie. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm actually sick. I have bronchitis, but I miss you guys so much, and I wanted to call in and say hi. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Okay. I'm excited that you have Rebecca on the line. I'm glad. I'm. I'm very glad. I love everything that you have to say. I'm a. I've been diagnosed with. I was actually diagnosed with AIDS two years ago, and I look forward to having another baby. And so you're just extremely inspiring to me. Good. I'm. Gl I'm glad. I'm glad. And I, I hope you feel better soon. Oh, yes, me too. The doctors have given me the runaround. It's been terrible. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to tell Robert that I'm excited to be doing the training, and I'm doing that as well. And I just think it's great for all working hard to help this stigma to, to go away. Well, thanks, Terry. I appreciate it. I look forward to the training as well. And I hope you feel better soon. Yes, I just wanted to say hi. You guys have a great night. You too. You too. Thank if you'd like you. to call and speak to Rebecca, you can give us a call at 347-215-9442 to show uh, the call. The phone lines are actually open right now. Uh, one of the other things that um, I wanted to speak about, um, just to go a little bit back onto the pregnancy um, topic, is before you decided to get pregnant, a lot of people were telling you 
that you shouldn't get pregnant, that you shouldn't even try. Is this right? Um. Well. Well, because yeah. you had you had you knew somebody who 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 did get pregnant and have an HIV positive child, and then that child passed away a few weeks or a month afterwards. Is that correct? Three years. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I did. You know, it was interesting because there there was a mom who said to me, "I don't understand how people can even contemplate this because, you know, your child suffers so much." And so, yes, I did. But you know, I expected more of the moms of positive kids to tell me not to even think about it. That's what that's what I thought they would say. I thought they would say, "Well, you know, you need to grieve, but don't do this." And it was interesting that actually the most encouragement that I got was from some of the moms of positive kids. And and one of the ones I remember best was a woman who said, you know, I'm sorry that my child was born infected, but I don't regret that they were born. Um, I feel like my child's, you know, a gift, and I'm glad they're alive, and I get really upset when people act like, my child is a tragedy. Their disease is a tragedy, but my child being on the planet is not a tragedy. So that that was interesting. Um, but certainly, I mean, I spent mm, five years researching, you know, was it possible to prevent um, a baby being born positive? And uh, it was listening to another positive woman speak at a community forum or something, and she said, you know, I think I'm waiting for someone to give me a guarantee that nothing bad can happen, and I'm starting to realize that no one's going to give me that guarantee. And um, that really resonated with me, that I was going to have to decide how much risk I could live with. Um, And uh, I kind of joke about it, but I feel like I... I went through sort of all my fear and hand-wringing and reading the worst possible things that could happen before I got pregnant. By the time I got pregnant, I had put myself through so much research, so many conversations with the experts, so many AIDS conferences, so many conversations with mothers of infected kids and with infected kids themselves that I you know, reached a point of, you know, accepting that I was going to do everything I was going to do and then I was going to let go. So, yeah. But I do think, you know, I think that probably lots of people thought I shouldn't have done what I did, but they didn't get in my face and tell me I shouldn't do it. The people who spoke their opinions about what I was doing were mostly really supportive. So, and I think, I don't know. I think that tends to be true. I mean, I don't tend to go get in somebody's face and tell them why I think they're all wrong. If I, you know, if I think somebody's doing something wrong, I'm not necessarily going to go verbalize that to them. That's a thought I can keep to myself. But if I'm trying to be supportive of somebody, that's something I always try and say out loud. Right. The the supporters were vocal. The critics were pretty quiet. That was okay with me. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure. That so, was fine to give some statistics on World, you, you founded in 1991. You founded mm-hmm. um, in your living room, and in the beginning, it was a newsletter that started with 200 readers, and now you're reaching over 12,000 readers in 87 nations. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it grew really fast after after the international conference in Amsterdam because we started an international um, community of women living with HIV and AIDS. And because World already had a newsletter and the ICW was a brand-new organization, they needed a way to communicate. So I got a grant to put everybody on the mailing list. Um, they eventually got their own newsletter, but in the in the interim, we got a lot of international readers. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. The newsletter does not come out as regularly anymore. Um, I don't work at World anymore, um, but there's an organization housed at World now, which is the Positive Women's Network, and they have a newsletter, I think it might be quarterly maybe, that comes out more regularly now. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 
so so tell us where uh so I have a couple of questions. Uh because I, I can't believe we're down to our last fifteen minutes. Awesome. Um where can people go to uh where can women go to sign up for the newsletter? Oh, okay. Uh dot org. Um they could also call five one oh nine eight six oh three four oh um there are also uh lots of other great women's organizations out there so if you google women hiv you'll find other organizations the well project has a great website the body does a good job of covering women's issues um, Olivia Ford at the body used to actually work at the school that I work at and um, actually uh, knew my kids back when she worked at my school. So shout out to Olivia Ford always. We love Olivia. I actually just saw her this Friday. Yeah, Olivia's amazing. She's awesome. She did an amazing article a couple months back about the relationship between abuse and trauma and HIV and how women's HIV services need to address abuse and trauma. And I was just so proud of her. It was an amazing article and something that hasn't been talked about enough. So it was brilliant. Uh, absolutely. You know, and I, quite honestly, I still think um, women and HIV is still, if you ask me, it's subpar to where it should be with uh, it's where where I think gay men and HIV is today. I, I still think we have a ton more work to do um, to make sure that uh, women and uh, HIV and, as HIV positive women are seen on an equal equal footing. You know, with yeah, uh, yeah. I, I still see it as as not being I just said that it's, it's, I still don't see it as being on par with with other issues. Um, what about this university program that world that that world has? Uh, HIV University. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's running right now. Um, I haven't been over there recently, but it was a cool program. What we did was. We had a bunch of people who wanted to learn about their disease, and um, we decided to start our own little school at World. And so what we would do is the people who wanted to take the classes, like you're about to take a training, right? So we got all these women together who wanted to be trained, but it was the women who were going to take the training who decided what they wanted the curriculum to be. So they said... uh, you know, they wanted stuff on medical things, understanding the immune system, drugs, um, disclosure, parenting. They were also way ahead of their time. They were they were asking questions about their liver uh, long before people were talking about hep C very much. They were asking about um, adherence. We used a different name for it, but before that became sort of popular. And so they would put together this whole curriculum, and then they would decide who they trusted to come teach each of those different classes. So we would have invite a guest teacher for each class to come teach that class. And then a significant number of the people who went through that program then ended up getting jobs as peer advocates or counselors or case managers and stuff like that because they were really well informed by the time they were done with that program. Uh, That program, we trained people from, I think, 20 cities um, to do that program. There's an amazing program in New York City, which I'm drawing a blank right now. What's it called? Oh, geez. I feel really bad. There's this amazing women's program in New York. I'll have to, maybe I can email it to you. You can post it on the website when I... Uh, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm going to Google. You're going to Google. Okay. Uh, smart. Smart. Started out as Smart University, and then I think they're still called Smart or Smart Women or something like that. 
And SMART's an acronym for something. I don't know what. But, uh, yeah, we got to work with the women from SMART when they came out to San Francisco for that training. And they did the training in Botswana and South Africa. It's been to a lot of places. So that was a lot of fun. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, so, you know, as we we always get down to our last ten minutes, and they always always fly by. Before we let you go, mm-hmm. what? Wait a minute, Jeremy. Before you ask a final question, let me just ask um, one thing, or, or mention one thing. One of the things, Rebecca, that I thought was really amazing about your story is your husband Daniel, and how supportive mm-hmm. he has been, and how. He still is, and how he chose to stay with you, because, you know, back in the 90s, you know, an AIDS diagnosis, a lot of people thought that that was a death sentence, and, mm-hmm. you know, people would be scared, and they would just leave whoever they were with if they were diagnosed. So how does that feel to have a husband who was so supportive, you know, even after HIV has entered the circle? Uh, you know what? He's pretty amazing. He was pretty amazing before this came along, but... What I always say is HIV takes whatever cracks might be in your relationship, good cracks, bad cracks, and puts a huge magnifying glass over it. So whatever was bad might get way worse, and whatever was good can get way better. And um, he has been such an amazing support all these years. Um, And, you know, I actually tried to drive him away. I didn't realize I was doing it. I We had a like a potluck for heterosexual couples, and another couple, there was a guy who talked about how he had started picking fights with his HIV-negative wife and all this stuff because he felt guilty about dragging her down with his disease. And I realized that I had been doing the same thing. So um, I think... I've met a lot of people where when somebody chooses to stay, maybe we test them because we don't want to get abandoned when we're sick, so we'd rather just drive them away when we're well and learn to cope. And uh, I feel bad about um, how much I tested him in the early days because he was rock solid and has always been rock solid, and he has never made me feel diseased. He's never made me feel, you know, germy. He's never acted like he's afraid. Um, you know, we need to clone him. What can I say? He's a good guy. Right. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you is, can you ex- explain the risk that is involved in an HIV negative man um, having relations with an, uh, a positive woman who has a low viral load? Mm. Well, yeah. Um, let's see. I I can't say that I can just pull that research out. You know, I mean, I have heard that if viral load is low in any couple, that then the risk is significantly lower as well. Um, personally, uh, even very low risks. Personally, I'm not willing to take. Um, so, uh, personally, I'm still a big promoter of safe sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, back in 1990, what I found very reassuring is we looked at studies of mixed couples where one's positive and one's negative, and they showed that when people use condoms consistently, the negative partners did not get infected. And so um, we have, I mean, you know, if you were in the room, I could put him on the phone and, you know, or I can run and find him in the kitchen if you want, see if he feels safe or not. But he seems to feel safe to me. I have never felt like there was a danger to him because we awesome. protect him. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. So yeah. one last question. and okay. and. uh and I always ask, we always ask at the end of every show. Mm. Someone comes to you who's newly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. What is the one piece of advice that you give to every to that to that person? One piece of advice to a newly diagnosed person. I would say... Know that this is not 
a death sentence and know that there are people out there who want to help you and you are not alone. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We just thought of one more. One more quick one. Okay. What would be age that yeah. you told your children that you were positive? Huh? What was the age that you told your children that you were positive, and how did you do it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I told them much younger than I would have. Um, I think they were three, maybe four, because we had done a documentary for PBS, and um, I realized suddenly one day we discovered the head of their preschool stopped me in the hall and said, hey, I see you're going to be on TV tomorrow night. And I completely freaked out because, you know, I'd had no reason to tell my three-year-old or four-year-olds because I was healthy. I wasn't sick. I'd had no reason to tell them. But I was terrified that someone at the school, a teacher or a parent, was going to say, oh, you know, poor you, your mommy's dying, and they would freak out. And so I made a decision that anything that happened with my health, they needed to hear it from me first so that, they wouldn't feel like I'd broken trust with them. So I told them I told them a very simplified version of it then, but then over the years I told them more and more. And when they were in seventh grade science and they started telling me they were learning about T cells, that's when I pulled out my labs and really started giving them, you know, more information. I was like, Oh yeah, you want to know what mine are? Here, let's look at my labs. So it's a process. It's not a one time thing. What they can understand when they're little is very different from what they understand when they're older. And the other thing is, you know, you can't shut up a four-year-old. So, you know, once I told them, they would tell everybody. Sophie used to walk up to complete strangers, you know, and within by the time I arrived across the playground, they would know I had HIV. So, you know, it's something for parents to take into consideration. You want your kid to hear it from you first, but know that, you know, they might not want to keep it a secret or they might feel stigmatized if they're asked to keep it a secret. So it, it's a family decision, I think, that um, everybody, fam- every family is going to come to a different decision about how to do that. But we started very young. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it's, you know, it is what it is, and a lot of people have, you know, who we've had on the show, women who have kids had told their kids that they have bugs in their blood, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. or, or different things. Like that, just to kind of break it down to the to the child level, the child's level, so they would kind of understand that, you know, God forbid if mommy or daddy ever had something or got cut not to touch mommy or daddy's blood because, you know, there was quote-unquote bugs in their blood. So, you know, it's just nice to to hear, you know, how it's told from mother to child, each each guest differently. So I want to thank you for coming on the show. Can, do you have time for me to say one quick thing about that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because, um, you know, in how, how many children were taught that when you have a scrape or you have an owie, your mother kisses your boo-boo, right, to make it better? And so one day I scraped my knee, and Sophie went to kiss me, and I had blood on it. And I kind of freaked out, and I realized, like, oh, God, we should not be teaching children or anyone else that the way you deal with, you know, a bloody scrape is to have someone else kiss it. So from that age on, from about three on, I told them, you never touch anybody's blood, not even mommy's. So it wasn't that mommy's blood was bad. I said, you don't touch anybody's blood ever for any reason, not even mine. Oh, I, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I always thought that was gross anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone, well, you know. Yeah, it does make yeah, it feel would, better though if you're four. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're talking, that makes you feel better. Well, Rebecca, yeah. I want to thank you for, for coming on the show tonight and, and sharing your story, and I also want to thank you for allowing your two beautiful kids to come on next weekend. And, and share what it's like to to be on the other end of the spectrum and have an Yeah. So thank you again. And and how can people reach you if they would like to contact you for speaking or anything like that? Or do you do you still do? Oh things like gosh. That? Um, I don't give out my number publicly, but they could contact World, and World will send me an email. There you go. So they can go to womenhiv.org and contact them if they would like to contact you. Yeah, they could, they could ask Nina, the receptionist, to send me an email. Okay, well, Rebecca, you have a great night, and thanks okay. again for, for joining us. Okay, thank you. You have a great night. Thank you. Okay.
All right, Jeremy, well, we're down to the last 20 seconds. So for more information on um, Jeremy Gunn, you can go to PositivelySpeaking.com. For more information on my show, past shows, you can go to posim.com. Don't forget to pick up the episode, the new um, – I can't even think of it. Any new magazine, check it out. Jeremy, have a great night. You too. Yeah. Have a good week, everybody. Bye, everyone. <laughs>